0: not, you know, the Old Testament's not a part of what we do today, and and the New Testament's who we are today, and there's an element of truth that we're not under the law, but we can learn so much from the Old Testament because it does point us to the gospel. As you look through, you will see glimpses of Jesus and the gospel all throughout, and that is my heart today, again, as we look at the book of Judges, kind of as a, I'm going to jet tour through Judges here in a bit, um, but uh, you will see the gospel unfold. To recap a bit, and I'm not going to go all the way back, but Moses has led the children of Israel, you know, out of Egypt, out of bondage, and he gets to the edge of the promised land, and you remember that he disobeyed God, and there was a whole generation of people that disobeyed God. And God's command was there was going to be a new leader. There's going to be a whole new generation that are going to come into the promised land. And uh, it was a very sad thing. The consequences of rebellion, grumbling, complaining. That whole generation, God said, "They they will die in the wilderness and they will not inherit what I had for them. Except for two, and that was Joshua and Caleb, um, these two men of God who were uh, who were faithful to the very end, and uh, God saw their faithfulness, so they were able to come in with the younger generation. And so Joshua takes over as leader. He leads them into the Promised Land. Last week, you talked a little bit about uh, they had to fight some battles. If you if you track along in the Book of Joshua, they come into the Promised Land. So we pick up today. That they, are, they, that they have, in the book of Judges, they're there. They have not completely conquered the land. Um, this is the land, though, that God promised. Even remember, if you track back to Abraham, God said, I, I promised this land to you, and I will bring your descendants there. And so we have the people there. So we pick the story up in the book of Judges. So this is the time before kings, we will get into kings later on, but this is the time before kings ruled in Israel, so we'll look at this quick tour through the entire book of Judges today. So we're going to go from chapter one to the end of the book in about 40 minutes. Are you ready? Some are hoping for 30, so we'll, we'll see what we can do. So we're going, to look at the, we're going to look at where the people are spiritually, their choices, the consequences of those choices. You're going to see the good, you're going to see the bad, you're going to see the ugly of everything about the children of Israel here. You will see God raising up judges and leaders to lead the people back to God and to times of peace. But as we look at them and we look at the Israelites, and let's not disconnect so much and just say, look at, look at them, let's look at us. Let's look at our own hearts. I encourage you to look at your own heart, examine your heart to see what God might be speaking to you through their story. What is God pointing out in your own life as we look at their story? Because it's really easy, isn't it, to be an armchair quarterback and criticize decisions and choices? How many of you guys are football armchair quarterbacks? Monday, you know exactly what that team needed to do to win the game. Come on, I've got my hand up. You know, you just... Everybody's a coach, and if they would have just done that, then the, the game, they didn't call me. And you were waiting by the phone, hoping maybe they would text you in the middle of the game and say, What should we do? <laughs> Isn't it easy for us to do that? It's easiest for us to criticize them, and we see even how they came through the Red Sea and the miraculous. And we, we would say, Man, if I saw all those miracles, there's no way I would criticize. The answer is yes, we would, because we're broken. But let's look at our let's examine our own lives and let's see God mercifully because when he points something out, it's out of his mercy. Because he wants us to be right with him. And so we're going to take a look somewhat of the book ends of, of Judges, the beginning of the story and sort of the, the, the ending of the story. But here's the beginning: Joshua is the leader, God used him to enter the land. Then once they were there, it says this in Judges 2. So we're going to look at the first slide, a couple of passages of Scripture here. So this is the beginning um, part of it. It says the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Things were going pretty well. You know, Joshua was with Moses. He honored, he feared the Lord. Remember, Remember his farewell speech. At the end of, the, uh, of Joshua, it says this, and, we, and maybe you have this hanging on your house, or you've heard this passage, he says, he's challenging the people, and he says, will you serve the Lord? And they said, yes, we will. And he said, you need to understand, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they said, oh, we will too. And he said, you will be held accountable for saying this, for saying that you will follow the Lord. And so he gives this speech he's led them in and it says this the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. This is like this is the good stuff. We'd like to think that the rest of the story would be great that the Israelites they came into the promised land they were a light to the nations they were God's representatives to the world they showed the other nations, what it means to worship the true and living God, because they, you know, they had all they needed. They, the, the number one thing they had was God, right? God is all we, all we need. They had God. They had a sense of identity now. They're not slaves anymore. They're not slaves in Egypt. They, they had God. They had a sense of identity. God had given them the Ten Commandments, this, his heart for them, saying, here's a standard of, of living that I, I want you to live in. And more than just rules, we get it's a father giving guidance to his children. And that's where you get the Ten Commandments. So they had purpose. They had their own land. And you would think that they would come into the nation and be God's representative. But that's not what happens. Let's look at the next passage. So this is the beginning of Judges. And it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that is, they passed away, they died, Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. That's very important that we remember that. They did not know the Lord. And so this beginning of the book, this beginning of the story sets us into a cycle that happens over and over through the book of Judges. It's this new generation, they didn't know God and they didn't know what God had done for the people of old. And so this is an essential key to what leads them into a chaotic rollercoaster life that you will see kind of unfold in the rest of the book and then ultimately have a very sad ending. And so the end of this book is sad, but it doesn't have to be our ending, and that's the good news that we're going to look at later But this cycle, they did not know God. Now let me stop there. This is where it was so important. If you look back in Joshua, remember when Joshua, they came across the Jordan River and they did that, those stones of remembrance. Some of you guys know that story. They set up rocks and they said they're going to do this stone of remembrance, the power and the significance of remembering what God had done. He said because, and God said, I want you to do this because there's going to be a time where you will come here and your children, your grandchildren will be walking along. Maybe you'll be fishing in that river with your grandson. And you go, Grandpa, what, is the, what are those stones all about? And it'll be an opportunity for Grandpa to say, let me tell you what God did. And this power of remembering what God did This is what happened in the sad part of Judges at the beginning is that they did not know God because what happened is there was a generation of people that stopped telling what God had done or they forgot why they were created. They forgot their purpose. That's why Jesus, at the end of uh, the the, the whole Bible in Revelation, he writes this letter to the church of Ephesus. What does he say to them? You're going through the motions, but you've left your first love. You've forgotten. You've forgotten why you're a Christian. You've forgotten why you're following Christ. You've forgotten love, that he loves you so much that he died for you and that we somehow, somehow lose that, the, 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 the awe and the, the power and the significance of God. We look at the cross as kind of like, eh, yeah, that's what we, the cross, it's Easter, big deal. But do you understand what happened on that day when Jesus died for you? Don't lose the power and the significance and the joy that Jesus loved you and he gave his life for you. Don't forget and that's what had happened And the tragic beginning is they forgot, they didn't know God. Because at some point, people stopped talking about God. And so you see them go into this cycle, this pattern, this cycle that repeats itself over and over. And we're going to look at the cycle and kind of break down this a little bit. Let's go to the next slide. See, here's the cycle. One, the people are defeated. They get captured by their enemies, so they've gone in the promised land. God says, this is yours if you will obey me, if you will do what I say, if you will walk with me, not just follow rules. Again, what kills a heart is to simply just follow rules. Rules are there because we have a loving Father that's given us those rules, and so they've gone in and then they, they are, they're, they're defeated, they're captured by their enemies as a consequence to their rebellion of God. What is that? They've removed God from their lives. We don't need God. In fact, it says that they would go into idolatry and start worshiping the gods of the people that were in, in the land. And so what you have, for the, they're, they're removing God, from their lives, and then they take control, and they take lordship of their own lives. That's basically the foundation of every sin. Removing God, I'll take control, I'll take lordship of my life. God, you are removed, I got it. And so it's a consequence, they're defeated, and God allows them to be captured. And it's merciful. Consequences of sin are merciful, because he says, I don't want you to just live out from underneath me you're going to suffer consequences and sometimes suffering and pain comes because of our rebellion and our sin and our self-lordship hebrews 12 talks about god's kindness when he disciplines us and if you're experience a hard hardship if you're experiencing some sort of pain and suffering because of a sin thank god for it discipline's not enjoyable when it's happening but it produces a harvest of right living as parents, nobody, shouldn't be, but nobody likes to discipline their kids. But if you don't, what happens is they, they become lawless. They become out of control. And you set these standards because you love them. And so sometimes suffering or pain can come as a consequence of sin or rebellion and or taking lordship of our own lives. Embrace that. Repent. Get right with God. He loves you. Other times suffering can come simply because we love God and live in a fallen, broken world. You know, we're, the, the when your Bible today was talking about, 1 Peter was talking about, there is times of suffering. As, as children of God and on this earth, we're going to experience suffering. There is no absence of suffering. We're going to suffer in some way, to some degree. But what Peter says is make sure you're suffering for the right reasons as far as outward suffering. If it's a consequence of sin, repent and get right for God, with God. So here's the first part of the cycle. They would, they would rebel against God. They would, they would get captured and be held captive. So let's look at the second part of the cycle. So number two is they cry out to God in their misery and their pain and their bad circumstances. God, help us. Save us. Please look at our, look at our plight. What's going on? God, save us. Let me ask you this. Is your relationship with God based on running to him when things are hard, circumstances are bad, or maybe you're in an unbearable season and that's the only time you run to God? God, get me out of this. Look at this physical thing I'm going through. Do you care? Look at this financial mess I'm in. Look at what my kids are going through. Look at what my spouse is going through. The crops are failing. God, save us. Help us. Rescue us. And those are great things to pray for. I'm not diminishing that. I'm saying, is that the only time we run to God? And sometimes that's what caused us to go in this cycle, this up and down roller coaster ride with Jesus, is that we just come to Him simply when things are bad and I need to be rescued. He wants us to run to Him every day. Now, God can use those things to get our attention. But he wants us to walk with him daily, that we're crying out to him whether we need something or not. So here's the third step in the cycle, because God is still merciful, isn't he? And you see this play out in the book of Judges. So number three, God mercifully steps in because he still loves people. In the book, he raises up judges, and they come in, and they fight against the enemy. They rescue the people, and the land has peace once again, or the Israelites have peace. So again, God still hears, even sometimes when their motives are wrong, and isn't that good news that sometimes when we call out to him, even with the wrong motive, he hears us, and he's merciful, he's faithful, because he still loves us and desires us. And then number four, after a period of peace, the people get comfortable again. They go back into their old ways. Things are going good. We don't need God anymore. We've been rescued. And you see this. this I mean, this is the book of Judges. They remove God from their lives. They become their own Lord again. They go back into idolatry. And basically what they're saying by this is the, my relationship with you, God, is conditional. I'll, be, I'll call out to you when I need you. Other than that, I don't really need you. Thanks, God, for helping me out. We'll take it from here. And so they become lord again, this self-lordship, which is a bad place. When you become God of your life, it's not a good place. And so we go back into the cycle, number five, that leads them into living their own lives, doing their own thing, forsaking God, and then as a consequence, what? What? Defeated, captured by their enemies, and you see this play out over and over again. So, why is God? What is is God speaking to us through this book? What, What would He speak to us today as we look at this cycle and we look at what the Israelites did? Because here's what it says in Judges 2, 11, and 12, right after that. It says, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forsook the Lord. And that's, that, that was the cycle, the, 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 the cycle. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. So isn't it interesting that it says this, that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord? That... that that the writer would use that phrase, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, they, they forsook him. Mm-hmm. A couple other places, and we'll look at this more in a bit, but it says this, and it says this a few times in the book, the people did what seemed right, whatever seemed right in their own eyes. So you see the contrast? The writer says this, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but then they did what was right in their own eyes. There's two sets of eyes here in this book. There's God's eyes, there's God's vision, there's what God sees, and then there's the people's eyes and what the people see. And so the contrast would be what was right in the people's eyes was actually evil in the eyes of the Lord. What was right in the people's eyes, because it says this about them, they did what was right in their own eyes. And God saw that as evil. So that should sober us because what some of us would see as right with our own eyes, God sees as evil. So that, what does that mean? That means that we can be deceived. We can get very deluded. We can get turned upside down thinking right becomes wrong and wrong becomes right and we don't even know it. And then what, our, what happens is our walk becomes what can I get from him instead of knowing him and getting him? Because no relationships, no human relationship would be successful in that way if you just had a friendship, or your spouse, or your parent, or your child is to say, I love you for what I can get from you. There's no way that that relationship would ever survive. And yet this is what we see is, I love God for what he can do for me. And he's saying, I love you and you get me. And yes, there are benefits. Yes, that there are things that we can ask for. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that. There's things that we can implore him and say, God, come and save. We're commanded to pray and lift up uh, you know, our requests and make our requests known to God. But we need to get it in the right order. Because what happens, again, as we look, is, is the people, they had forgotten who they were. And we can forget our purpose and our identity and our destiny in Christ. And when you forget that, and when you forget that it's relationship, you will tend to live this up-and-down, roller coaster, chaotic life. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating here that Christianity isn't a religion that helps you learn to be more moral. It's a story of a holy God redeeming us through allowing Jesus, his only son, to be sacrificed for us. And then it's about this God saying, I did that not to make you more moral, but to, get, have, to bridge a relationship between him and us again. And then through that, we get a God every day to love and to worship and to surrender to and so that we don't have to have that pressure of lordship and control of our own lives. We give it to him and there is, the pressure's off then. It's like, I don't want to lord my own life. They didn't know God. Again, that, this is so telling and reveals of why they lived and how they lived through this entire book. They didn't know God. They didn't truly know him. And this is what God's desire for us is that we know him and love him and receive his love and then give that love to others. I think we can overcomplicate it. That's why I love having the children up here to remind us that we don't have to overcomplicate this. So the question is do you really know God today? Would you consider your relationship with Christ as a surrender life or do you live somewhat of that chaotic, cycled life, living from crisis to crisis, crying out to God when you need something? Life is frustrating and you kind of need him to, to rescue you and then you, he does or, or maybe he doesn't the way you want him to and then you kind of move on and you start doing your own thing again. Do you really know God? Because I, I lived that life. I understand that life. And what it leads to is it leads to a lifeless, passionless, religious walk. And, then, and, and, and ultimately, it can cause you to just fall away altogether because you, you, you know, you're, just, you're in it for the wrong reasons. And so then we transition into we see the beginning, we see why, we see the cycle And I want to look a little bit here as we flow into somewhat of uh, where I'm going to begin to end this thing. There might be three or four endings, you never know, but uh, we're going to look at the judges. I'm going to briefly touch in on the judges because all of these judges, when you see this many judges, this is that many times the cycle plays out that I just talked about. The cycle plays over and over and God uses these judges. And so we're going to look at these judges, how God raised them up, what we can learn from their lives, and then also what is God speaking into our story from their story. And so they're in captivity. They cry out. The first judge is Othniel. We're going to look at the judges. Othniel. This is Caleb's little brother. And what you're going to see with all these judges is God uses different types of people. Um, I, I, I one time met with this guy, and he asked me this question. And he's one of the, he was, he was what they consider like a type A leadership, kind of grab the bull by the horns, you know, and you're knocking people out of the way to lead. And he, he was asking me this. He said, do you think that leaders are born or are they made? Have you ever thought about that? Are leaders born or are they made? Because some people might be born with kind of a leadership kind of calling on their life. Some people maybe can be made into a leader. You train them and they go through different things and And so he asked me this question, I kind of just rehearsed it in my mind, and then I started thinking about the Bible. And I started thinking about all the different types of people that God uses as leaders, especially in this book. And so my answer to him was kind of perplexing to him. I said, I don't think it's neither. I don't think they're born or made. As As far as we're talking about spiritually, I said, I think God is the one who promotes leaders and makes leaders and you'll see that play out. And you'll see that there's an element and a call on our lives as well. And God uses broken people to lead. Othniel was Caleb's little brother. He seemed to be a natural choice for a judge, being the first judge. He was kind of a classic leader. I mean, his br- big brother is Caleb. I mean, that's, that's, he's already in a big-hitting family right there. Caleb was one of the main guys that came into the Promised Land And so his name, Othniel, means lion of God. So, I mean, his name is just like Othniel, lion of God. This guy seems to be a natural leader. From what we can tell, he did a pretty good job. There was really not a lot said about him, but from what we can tell, he did a pretty good job. So kind of that natural leader that everybody would look and go, that's probably the guy. Then we go into Ehud is the next judge in line. Call him lefty. Because it's interesting, the Bible mentions that he's left-handed. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of those that, the Bible doesn't give us things just for trivial matters. There's a reason why it tells us that he's left-handed. If you look, when you're reading the Bible, I encourage you to dig into a little deeper of why we're told certain things. Have you ever read something and go, why, why do they have to mention that? You know, why do we need to know that he's left-handed? Well, there is a reason because, all right, how many are left-handed here today? Lefties. Quite a minority. Wow. Not a lot of lefties. Today, we understand that being a lefty is more normal, but evidently not as normal here. (laughs) But back then, it was a little suspect. It is actually considered a flaw because right-handedness is authoritative. If you track along with biblical things, right hand, when they would bless with the right hand, there was something authoritative with the right hand. so being a left-handed person was considered a flaw or a weakness. And I think God used this guy to make a statement to us because most of us feel maybe that way about ourselves, that we're flawed. God couldn't use me because of whatever reason you got. God's not impressed with those reasons. Like we're missing something. But if you read his story, God uses Ehud to deliver the people just as he did Othniel, the lion of God. And I love the story because so many of us think that maybe God can't use us for some reason or another. Maybe we don't have the right education or the right experiences or the right personality. like Moses, I don't speak well. And God would say, what? Oh, you're right. You don't speak well. He doesn't, he's not impressed with our excuses. What does he say to Moses? Who gave you your tongue? I can use you. It doesn't matter. We think that maybe we're too old. God's done with me. I'm on the shelf and I'll wait till I, I die to be with Jesus. If you're here, and I'm almost afraid to say what's considered old because people give you that look. If you're 65 and older. We'll just go with the normal age. God's not done with you yet. Until you are with him in glory, God's not done with you yet. You have a purpose and a plan. Maybe you feel like you're too young. What did did God say to Jeremiah? Do not say that you're too young. Any number of things that we can figure out that is a flaw, there's a reason why we're told this guy's left-handed, because... He could have said, well, you know, I'm kind of a flaw. I'm weak. God wouldn't want to use me. And God says, your flaws don't matter. I made you, and I've put a purpose on your life. In fact, God can use even our weakness, our brokenness, where we become wounded healers, even our past, those things that are dictating of our past, abuse, addiction, all number of things. God can redeem that and make you a wounded healer for his glory. So the next judge was Shamgar. I love these names. If you're thinking of baby names, there's, there's a few good ones in here. Shamgar, we call him the two-sentence guy. That's what I call him. Because he's somewhat a hidden leader. And I was talking to, uh, to, uh, to Taylor about this and Taylor goes, that was a pretty awesome two sentences though. He says he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. That's awesome. But he's somewhat of a hidden leader. We don't have a lot of history on him. He's just a two-sentence guy. But a lot of times we tend to think that the most significant way to be used by God is to be seen and out front. You need to be Caleb's little brother. You need to be preaching. You need to be up on stage. That is not right in the kingdom of God. Our serving of God in the quiet and the hiddenness God sees Because we're not about culture, about rushing to the front of the line and being seen of men. In fact, Jesus said, run from that. That's why Jesus washed feet as an example. He says, "This this is why I came. I came hidden. I was hidden. I washed feet. I became a servant. That's what the example you should take. It's not about being up front. In your hiddenness, God sees. Be faithful. That's what he desires. No matter what you do, God sees even if you're a two-sentence guy. Deborah came next. She's the next judge. Now, the cultural implications we all know. She's a woman. In that day and age, I mean, it was, women were not to be leaders. They were pushed aside, but here God, God is making a statement that he can use whoever he wants. A woman becomes a judge of Israel. Remember, she goes to, her, her, uh, it, it's a guy named Barack, and he's kind of who God is looking at. And, and he asked Deborah to come along. She was a prophetess. She gave words of the Lord to people. And Barack says, You know, I want you to come along with me to fight the enemies. And she said, Well, you need to know if you're choosing me, then a woman is going to be raised up and is going to be seen in the, in the great victory. And actually, God used a very hidden woman to kill the enemy. It's a pretty graphic story. She drove a tent peg through his temple, and then she sings a song about it, which I always think is hilarious. <laughs> you ever read that? And it's a song. This is the song of Deborah, and part of it, and she drove, you know, drove a tent peg through his head. I'm like, you're not teaching the little kids that song. Skip that verse. <laughs> a cheerful song of Deborah. But again, God's looking for faithfulness, and he can raise up whoever he wants. The next judge is Gideon, who is probably somewhat more popular. We've heard a lot of stories about him. Gideon is an unlikely leader. He's fearful. He's timid. He is not a type A. He is not a guy that everyone would look at and say, I think he's the guy. He would be the last person on everyone's list. It's like if we've run out of everyone else, he'll do because he's the last one. I mean on the, you know in the kickball game you're not picking Gideon for your team. You know he's the last guy up against the wall, you know and it's like you know and he just knows he's going to be last every time. And then you know whoever gets that last pick they just ah go oh, Gideon. Come on. And he sees himself as that. I mean he he understands that he's he's the least. He's very fearful. But God uses unlikely people, and you see that as a the theme throughout Scripture. So Gideon's fearful. He's timid. He makes excuses of why he shouldn't be. He's talking, to, he's talking to the angel about his pedigree. I'm the, it's my, my tribe is the least and the least family, and I'm the least person in that least family, and you, you know, I'm not the guy. And, 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 and here, what does the angel of the Lord greet him with? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And he's like, I think you got the wrong guy. God made a mistake on this one. So what does God do with this fearful leader? He puts him in the most fearful setup. I love that. When you're dealing with stuff and you're dealing with fears and the things that you don't want to deal with, guess what God's going to have you do? Yeah, because he says, I'm with you. I'm going to make you deal with it. So God puts him in the most fearful setup. He cuts the army down from 32,000 to three hundred. Now, again, that can seem significant already, but you know what? With the 32,000, they were already outmanned incredibly. And so he goes, 32,000 to 300 says no weapons, trumpets and pots. Go surround the enemy, blast the trumpets, shatter the pots, and watch what happens. And here's this fearful, timid leader going, you got to be kidding me. I mean, in fact, he asked God, he said, you know, can I put, that's where we get the fleece. You know, you put a fleece out for God. That's Gideon. Well, you know, can you, can you show me a little something? I need to know. I mean, because I, if we jump into this thing and we're dead, 300 guys surrounding a whole army, we're going to shatter them and then all the enemy is going to go, you know, it's like 5,000 to one at that point. We're in trouble. So God does something completely ridiculous, seemingly, because he wants us to trust him. And he uses Gideon, an unlikely leader. And the next judge is Jephthah. Here's another unlikely leader. We have this guy's story. He's the son of a prostitute. He's got a sordid past. He's a guy that people would, you know, not just Gideon where he's fearful and timid. He's a guy that just people would say, I don't even want him to be leader, even if he's the last guy. But God is a redeemer of our past. Believe that. That is the good news of the gospel. He's the son of the prostitute. His stepbrothers hated him. They drove him out of the home. He fled to Tob where there's a gang of scoundrels gathered, and they start following him. It's all a bunch of broken people. It's like him, you know, he goes and he goes out, and all of his friends are the guys at the bar. You know, and it's just broken down. He's like, hey, guys, um, you know, I think I'm supposed to be the leader. And they're like, okay, we're in. They put their beer down. Let's go. This is the picture here. And that's what the Bible says. It says that he had a gang of scoundrels that were gathered around him. Can you imagine being in that group? You are called the gang of scoundrels. (laughs) The rejected son of a prostitute, brothers abandoned him, gang of scoundrels. He ended up leading this gang of misfits to rescue Israel. I think it somewhat sounds like the disciples that Jesus chose. A little bit of a, that's a group, wasn't it? Misfits. Because Jesus didn't choose like the Pharisees, the religious people they would have chosen. He looked for people who had hearts that would be faithful. So God is speaking that no matter what your past, God loves you and he has a plan for you. Final judge was Samson, probably the most famous. We love the little Sunday school stories about Samson and his great strength, but he was a reckless individual. Marries the girl from the wrong side of the track, slept with prostitutes, ignored God's law, kind of brought brought destruction and embarrassment a lot of places that he went. But somehow, in spite of all of it and God's mercy, God still used his life. The very end is that triumphant and tragic story where he repents to God, pushes the pillars, and he takes himself out in the Philistines. And the story, once again, reveals that God is merciful and desires to rescue us from our sins, rescue us from ourselves, rescue us from the lordship of our own lives, and use us for his glory. And so what do we learn from the lives of these people? They were broken down people that God used. A lot of them were a mess, as you see. I didn't get into all their stories. I mean, we could look at each individual guy and and probably preach a sermon on that. We see them as heroes in Sunday school, but what we don't look is they were deeply stained. Love Samson's strength, but he had some major lust and sexual problems. You've got to also learn that they didn't all end well. And as good as human leaders as they were, they were broken and they were flawed, and they themselves still needed something. In our own leadership and God using us, let's be very careful to understand that we must point people to Christ and not ourselves. That's, that's one of the flaws of, we, 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 we long to be noticed, we long to be loved, we long to be desired, and that's, part of it is, is God putting that in us to ultimately help people to desire Him to see His, his work in our lives but we got to be careful that we don't just point people to us because we're broken and we're flawed, but we need to point people to the work of Christ in us because that's the disappointment, isn't it? When you put your hope in an individual to a point where it's become almost borderline worship or worship, complete worship, and then they let you down, what happens? You're devastated. Even as a pastor, and I, I, I try to try to keep this out in front of you i'm going to let you down i'm going to give you lots of reasons to forgive me not purposefully but i will and we can't elevate people to the place of god and so we learn that these people are broken we learn in our own lives that we are broken and then god uses us for his glory but to point people to christ that's our mission And then what we learn from them, too, is their their leadership being broken and flawed, it points us to the need for the greatest leader of all time. And this is where you see the gospel unfold. As good as they were at rescuing, their rescue only came to a certain point, and it was flawed and it was broken, and you see that in their lives. But it points us, and it points our eyes To the one who is without flaw, who is without blemish, who is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect rescuer, and his name is Jesus. Because we're sinners, we're dead in our sins without Jesus. Paul says we fall short of God's standard and we deserve judgment. And then in somewhat of that story of Judges, you see the story of redemption unfold. Because what would they do in their brokenness, in their mess, in their captivity, in their sin, they would cry out to God, God save us. And what does he do? He hears them and he saves them. And so in the honesty of our own hearts, when we realize we're broken, we realize we're flawed, we realize there's no chance without him, and we honestly come before God and say, I am a sinner and I need your grace and I need your mercy. I receive your sacrifice. I can't save myself. I don't want to be the Lord of my own life. I want to make you Lord. He hears and he saves us. And he rescues us from death. But then he says, don't stop there. I didn't rescue you just for one day. I rescued you to be in relationship with you. Rescued. To be in relationship—that's what he's created us for. Because here's the last verse in the book of Judges, the end of the story. This is how the book ends. This doesn't have to. This is their story. It doesn't have to be ours. So after all these cycles, after seeing God move in, God do miraculous things, the story of Gideon, God using three hundred to save Israel, they see all this. They see God's move. They see supernatural things. And then we get, here's the very last verse of Scripture in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. And we see this. This was repeated before. But it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Somewhat of just the tragic ending of saying, and we don't know how a lot of them ended. We see when the kings rise up, you see some of the cycle continue. And it's a tragic end to the story, but it doesn't have to be the end of our story. This is the end result for a life that doesn't truly know God. Remember the beginning, it says they didn't, this generation grew up and they didn't know God. This is the, the end result. This is the fruit of a, a life that doesn't truly know God. This is a setup to live in that cycle, up, down, roller coaster ride. I love God. I'm fired up. I love Jesus. He's awesome. Some kind of pain happens and I plummet down and there is no God and I'm not sure what I believe. And you go up and down cycle rebellion, go into the hard circumstances. God, I need you. And He rescues and then I don't need you. It, over and over. It's a chaotic life that God didn't create us for. And so the question is this. As you leave here today, as you meditate on this, will this be your story? Are you going to do what's right in your own eyes? are you going to give lordship to God every day? And again, before we look at a critical eye of the Israelites, let's look at our own lives, little things, little decisions. Maybe, you know, we can look at them and say, well, I'm not worshiping idols. Well, are you sure about that? Little decisions where we remove God from the throne. God has been convicting me, even over this, of little areas of my life. Maybe I just make a decision. I don't inquire, inquire of him. And I'm not talking about living a life in fear of, Because you know, can I take a step, God? Are you sure? I can? I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about living life in relationship with him where you're saying, God, I want to be led by you. But he'll walk in the Spirit. And not living according to what is right in my own eyes but Lord what is right in your eyes what is pleasing to you how can I worship you how can I live for you so what would your response be today let's pray Jesus we love you thank you Lord for this rich book that Lord ultimately points us to the greatest rescuer of all time Jesus Christ I pray, God, that every day we would give our hearts to you, we'd give our lives to you, God, that we, you would protect us from living life by what is right in our own eyes. But, Lord, that we would run to you, that we would run to your word to find out what you are saying about how to live life. And then, that Lord, as you point things out, as you are mercifully maybe putting your hand on something and say, what about that area? Lord, that we would get that right with you because we want to be in relationship with you because you love us, that we would see it out of love. God, may we every day give you the lordship of our lives, surrendered, walking with you day after day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Happy Thanksgiving to every one of you.